This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the death of Hercules. You'll see why. If you're going to save someone from a sea monster, you should really get cash up front. And how any competition with Hercules is like playing chess with a Wookiee. Just let the Hercules win. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a child-sized creature from Canada who just wants you to buy him cigarettes. Or he'll give your chicken seizures and burn your house down. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 37, The Best at What He Does. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week, we're going back to ancient times and seeing the death of a man who needs no introduction. You don't need to have listened to the previous Hercules episodes, 10A and 10B, but it helps. Today's story starts not after, but during the labors of Hercules. Also, I'm 100% aware his name in the Greek is Heracles. I'm calling him Hercules, the Roman version of the name, because that's the name I picked in the previous Hercules episodes, and that's what I've always called him. The monster rose from the sea. Onlookers from shore could see its scales graze the surface of the water. Every so often, between the sea foam, they could see reptilian eyes and a razor-sharp beak before the creature dove back into the blue, seemingly limitless depths of the Mediterranean Sea. On the rock, not far from where the monster was starting to surface, was a woman. She was naked and chained to the rock. She was terrified, but she wasn't showing it. Being chained naked to a rock was indignity enough. Besides, the monster would kill her soon. Then, she saw the greatest hero in the world, gripping his club and clothed in the skin of the Nemean lion riding triumphantly, muscularly, and almost equally nakedly at the head of his ship. And she saw him go right past her. Okay, Hercules yelled over the ocean to the girl's father, sitting shamefully on the beach. Your daughter is about to get eaten by a sea monster. I have this club and this cloak and am Hercules. Kills monsters with a club is my middle name, or would be my middle name if it was shorter and not in English. Let's work something out. And they did. Panicked and not expecting to see Hercules riding over the waves, the king promised Hercules some horses that Zeus had given his family long ago. Hercules, happy about this trade, decided that he would fight this monster. He and his buddies, which included but were not limited to Theseus, Iolus, and others, rode out in front of the wave that approached the girl, named Hesion. Hercules jumped off and onto the rocks in front of the naked woman, and waited, and the beast flew from the water. Ten times the size of Hercules and Hesion, his teeth were out and sharp, and his beak ready to tear the woman in half. Hercules clambered up the rock until he was right in front of the woman. He saw the monster coming for them. He looked at it. (laughs) He's seen worse. But this would need to be timed right. He waited and waited, and then, as the beast's teeth were nearly around him, Hercules dove right into the thing's mouth. The girl was confused. The king flabbergasted, and Hercules' friends horrified. One source said Hercules spent three days in the belly of the monster, but I can't imagine him taking that long, no matter how big this thing was. I'm going to say it was mere moments before Hercules came clubbing his way out of the thing's stomach, through its back, 
Hercules went to Hesion and shattered her chains with his club. He wiped the monster blood from him as best he could, but they saw that it was useless when they had to wade through a sea of monster blood to get back to her father. But her father wasn't there. Then Hercules saw someone waving from atop the walls of a nearby city. A few minutes later, the naked daughter and the nearly naked Hercules approached the gates. What was the city called? Troy? Huh, never heard of it, Hercules said, and he yelled to the king on the wall that he'd like his horses now. Oh yeah, no, I'm not giving you those. Okay, I'm Hercules, he said, and I'll come in there and I'll get my horses. The king laughed. You can try, but these walls were built by Poseidon and Apollo. They could stand up to, I don't know, all of the Greek city-states coming and besieging the city for 10 years? That's just a hypothetical, though. Something like that would never happen. These walls are actually the reason my daughter was out there. I didn't want to pay the Olympians, so they made me sacrifice my daughter. You can just leave her right there. Or don't. I just left her to be eaten by the sea monster, so I really don't care. Hercules rolled his eyes. He did not have time for this. He was right in the middle of his labors, and he had to steal this belt from the Amazonians and bring it back to King Eurystheus and Mycenae. But as soon as Hercules was done with that, and like six more labors, he said, he would be back for those horses, no matter what it took to get them. Years later, after Eurystheus cowered in terror when Hercules shoved Cerberus in his little brass bunker, Hercules was riding with six ships. He had a score to settle with the men of Troy. The king, from atop the wall, saw six ships approaching. In the intervening years, his city had only grown. Sure, it was an attacking force, but six ships? Please, he yelled for his warriors to assemble outside of the gates, on the plains of Troy. Hundreds of men poured from the ships, but King Laomedon, the one that refused to pay both Poseidon and Apollo, as well as Hercules, which might I just say, horrible idea, don't do that. The king had thousands in his city. They would beat these Greeks so badly that no one would ever dare to besiege the city of Troy again. And it was a bloodbath for the Trojans. It wasn't long before, in the face of literally mythic heroes, warriors were retreating back into the city. It doesn't say how Hercules and the others got through the walls. I like to imagine Hercules sprinting toward the gates and catching them right as they were about to close. He wanted to break the city and, by extension, he wanted to break King Laomedon. Maybe over his knee, or snap him in half like a twig. Hercules hadn't decided yet. As he strained against the massive weights closing the door, he heard another behind him. And then he felt feet running up his thighs, back, and leaping over his head. Telamon, his fellow awesome hero, jumped over him and made it into the city first. Hercules, enraged, opened the doors to get through. He wanted to be first, and according to Apollodorus, he was enraged that any man should be reputed better than him. He drew his sword and, in the chaos of the city, rushed towards Telamon. Telamon, seeing Hercules rushing toward him with his sword out, started stacking stones. Hercules was confused. He slowed as he approached, with arrows from Trojan archers from inside the wall bouncing harmlessly off his lion cloak. What are you doing? Hercules asked his fellow Grecian warrior. Oh, hey buddy, Telamon said. I'm just stacking stones for my friend Hercules, the victor, the first one to ever breach the Trojan walls. 
but but you were the first one through, Hercules said. That is crazy, Telemann said. Who am I, other than the father of the legendary hero Ajax, and the uncle to the other legendary hero Achilles? You're Hercules. I was just building this altar so that everyone would know that you were the first person ever to break Troy. It took Hercules a little while longer to finally get it, but then he patted Telemann on the shoulder. He was a good friend, and Hercules was glad he didn't murder him immediately. Now let's go get this king. Hercules fought his way up to open the gates, and the Greeks poured into the city of Troy. Hercules found King Laobanon and killed him for not paying him. In the destruction, he found Hesion, the daughter, and she begged Hercules, who was picking off Laomedon's sons one by one, not to kill her brother, a boy named Podarces. Hercules took them both captive. In a move that would have been okay in the ancient world, but absolutely appalling today, he gave the princess, Hesion, to his buddy, Telamon, as a gift. Before she left, she begged Hercules to let her brother go. Hercules, probably in adherence to some custom of the ancient world, had to take the young man as a slave first, and his freedom must be bought. Hesion took the veil off her head and handed it to Hercules. There, the young man had been purchased, and he was now free. The young man watched as the Greeks left with captives and slaves. Around him, what was left of his warriors were putting fires out all around the city. He was now the king of Troy. A thought that shocked him and filled him with a deep, aching sadness. He looked at all that must be done. The walls would need to be mended, the gates repaired, the dead buried, and the wounded cared for so that they didn't become the dead. Most of all, as Podarces watched the Greeks boarding their ships, his heart black with hatred for them, he planned to make this city indestructible so that if the Greeks ever came again, he would be ready for them. The young man did not go by Podarces much longer. The story of his sister's gift, of how he had been bought, spread. He started going by another name, one loosely derived from the Greek word meaning ransomed. As he repaired his city, he began going by the name Priam. If you're not familiar with the Trojan War, that name will mean next to nothing to you. But if you are familiar with the Trojan War, it will mean a lot. Priam was the king of Troy during the Trojan War, and the father of Hector in Paris. We are inching closer and closer to the Trojan War in the Iliad, which I would like to start sometime soon. We just have the background for the kings Agamemnon and Menelaus, and then Jason in the quest for the Golden Fleece left before getting to the Iliad. I'm particularly excited about Jason and the Argonauts, because it will enable us to get the band back together, so to speak, one more time, with the ranks of the Argonauts, including Hercules, Iolus, Theseus, and Medea technically, and others we've talked about in this phase one of Greek mythology. If we are comparing it to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, then, as I think I said in the Hercules episode, this is sort of an Avengers-style meetup for the ancient world. Anyway, Hercules continued living his life and being Hercules, which meant a lot of deadly naked wrestling matches, and many, 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 many romantic pairings. Time came for him to settle down, though. Again. Things were mostly cool with Hera, so he could be reasonably sure that things wouldn't end with him snapping and murdering his whole family. It's dark stuff, but check out episode 10A for more information on that. Anyway, we aren't going to start by talking about Hercules, but his future wife, Deonira right after this. 
This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. For less than $20 a month, you get four to eight items that include licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Loot Crate is also an entire community of fans that share their unboxing each month. Stay tuned for the next break when I talk about my little Batman's new friend from the Dystopia box. And Loot Crate guarantees $40 in value in each crate. And sometimes it's a lot more. So, no joke, but the figure in the t-shirt alone from last month more than made up for the price of the crate. And, as you know, each month there's a theme, and they find cool things to pack in the crate that fit around that theme. Good news, everyone. And that's my best Professor Farnsworth, but yeah, it is good news. Because July's theme is futuristic. There are things from Rick and Morty, Futurama, Mega Man, Valiant Comics, and Star Trek. And it includes a model, a figure, and, of course, the monthly t-shirt and pin. So remember, you only have until the 19th at 9pm Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com legends and enter code LEGENDS to save $3 on your new subscription today. Dianyra, Hercules' wife, drummed her fingers on the table. It had been years since she married Hercules. Hercules, the greatest hero of their time, or really any time up to this point. And now, she feared he might be dead. She had nothing to do but sit and think. If he was alive, then why hadn't she heard from him? If he was dead, then she needed to get to her children and protect them in the event of a coup. Most of the time, he just left on his adventures, not saying where he was going or when he would be back. But he always came back. This time had been different. He was going to war against the King of Ocelia, and he had given her a clay calendar with 15 months indicated on it, and said that if he's not back by then, then he's either dead or not dead and maybe coming home. Which, for the sake of the narrative, let's pretend that's not obviously true. Almost a tautological statement. He had put his affairs in order and written a will. He was somber and serious as he left for war. Deonira looked at the calendar. Fifteen months had ended days ago. She gritted her teeth in anxiety. He was dead. So yeah, that's the death of Hercules. He died, off camera, in some war. The end. No, I'm just kidding. Then she heard shouts outside of her window. The armies had returned. She rushed, rejoicing, to the crowd outside. She learned that Hercules was alive, but he was delayed miles behind. They had sacked Ocelia, and look at all the nice slaves they had acquired. This was truly a great day. Through the dust the slaves were kicking up, Deonira saw one woman, wailing. The others were discreet enough to keep their deep anguish to themselves, but this woman couldn't contain herself. Deonira looked up to Lichus, the man walking the slaves into the city, and asked who this woman was. Lichus just shrugged. He had no idea. Really, Deonira asked, because she's beautiful and this is ancient times, and that usually means she's a princess or something. Look, I don't know who she is, Lichus said. And this made sense to Deonira. They weren't super discreet or remotely caring at all when they sacked cities. Deonira saw the girl and took pity on her. She told the girl to come inside, and Deonira took her as her own personal slave. She told a servant to take the girl, flecked with blood and dirt, inside to clean her up. They're lying to you. Deonira heard from behind her. She turned with a smirk. 
her husband was returning, nothing could tarnish this day. Then she saw the face of a trusted messenger. They're lying to you, and we need to get to a place where we can be alone, the messenger said, and grabbed Deonira's arm and took her inside. Deonira was nauseous. If this was true, she had tried to argue, but the messenger made too much sense. The war with Ocelia wasn't just some territory dispute, or whatever her husband Hercules had told her, but this war, it seemed, was for the girl. The beautiful girl Deonira had just taken into her house, and what Deonira had heard her husband had done for this girl was sickening. The messenger, who doesn't have a name, it's sad because he's kind of cool, well, the messenger had pieced the story together from the accounts of many different people, and it stretched back to as far as when Hercules had just finished his labors. King Eurytus of Ocelia had a beautiful daughter, Ioli, the girl Deonira had just taken in. The king announced far and wide that whoever won an archery competition would win his daughter. The king began to panic as he saw Hercules rising up in the proverbial rankings until Hercules stood alone as victor. Just before Hercules was named as the winner, the king called off the competition. Hercules couldn't win. The murderer couldn't marry his daughter. Hercules had killed his last family. If he married Ioli, then the girl would surely die at the hands of this legendary monster. I mean, sure, he was going to give his daughter as a prize to the man who could best shoot a bow, but this was a step over the line. Iphitos, the eldest son of the king, argued on behalf of Hercules, but the king wouldn't hear it. He shut down the tournament and told everyone that they didn't have to go home, but they can't stay here. And Hercules, surprisingly, left without issue. He burned with hatred and vowed revenge on the family, but no one died at this juncture, which, given that it's Hercules, shows a huge amount of restraint. Okay, so you know the Batman quote, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain? Well, that very much applies to Hercules. He starts doing some very atrocious things from a modern perspective. And we'll see just how villainous this hero becomes right after this. This episode is still brought to you by Loot Crate. You've absolutely heard that Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. Loot Crate is awesome and has frequently sponsored the show. I'm a subscriber. And I like it because it's a cool little nerdy present that comes in the mail each month. Usually the t-shirt alone is worth the price of admission. And last month, the dystopia box came with, among other things, a cool little Funko guy and power armor from Fallout. He now lives next to my Funko Batman on my audio interface. I included a link to the photo in the show notes. It's basically Batman and an awesome little post-apocalyptic Robin. And you know that they've included things in previous crates from franchises like Marvel, DC Comics, Doctor Who, Adventure Time. Basically, if there's a franchise you love, they've done a crate with something from it. Anyway, I won't try to repeat my Farnsworth impression from last time because I'm cringing just thinking of that. But yeah, this month has a fairly awesome theme. Futuristic. It has stuff from Futurama, Rick and Morty, Mega Man, Valiant Comics, and Star Trek. So yeah, remember you only have until the 19th at 9pm Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash legends and enter code legends to save $3 on your new subscription today. On the road, Hercules was still burning with anger. 
He had won, but he'd been cast out. At least a kind old stranger had sold him a lot of cattle at a cut-rate price. Surely a stranger approaching you on the road, wanting to make you a deal on cattle, was nothing to be suspicious of. As Hercules drove his new herds, his day began to brighten. He went back to Mycenae, where he was living after his labors, and took a break from killing stuff for a while. Weeks later, a familiar face showed up. It was Iphitos, the eldest son of the king that had cast him out. And he was walking in the field, seemingly studying the dirt. Hercules, living in the Acropolis of the city ruled by his cousin, Eurystheus, saw him and invited him in. Hercules took young Iphitos as a guest when he learned that he was looking for some herds that had gone missing when Hercules was last in the city. Hercules enthusiastically pledged to help. Things only soured from then on. As you can probably imagine, Iphitos thought it was extremely suspicious that Hercules had come into such wealth mere days after their herds had gone missing. Hercules, despite many modern depictions of him as an oaf, was not stupid. He was, however, extremely thin-skinned and prone to violent outbursts. He saw, immediately, that Iphitos was trying to interrogate him over dinner. He had invited the young man in as a guest, but now, through some not-so-subtle wordplay, the man was accusing Hercules of theft. It was a little too much for Hercules, given that just weeks ago, he had been so rudely ejected by Iphitos' father. Hercules took a deep breath and slammed down what he was eating. Let's assume it was something manly, like a giant leg of lamb, and Iphitos was chilled by just how little Hercules' face matched his body language. Hey, Iphitos, buddy, Hercules said, let's take a walk. Minutes later, they were standing on the walls of the Acropolis, looking out over the city. Hercules directed him to the other side, where, in the setting sun, they could see the stables. Hercules rested his hand on the young man's back. Look down there, he said. Do you see your mares grazing anywhere in sight? Iphitos squinted. No. Huh, he didn't. He told Hercules as much. I imagine he thought that he was wrong, and maybe felt bad about how heavy-handed he had been during the conversation. Then, he felt Hercules grip the back of his tunic. Then you've not only secretly accused me of being a thief, but falsely accused me, Hercules said through clenched teeth. Before Iphitos realized what was happening, Hercules pushed his back sharply and he went sprawling off the edge of the wall. He tried to spin around, to grab anything, but he only saw the hard stone streets rising up to meet him. Iphitos was dashed against the stone at the bottom and died. were definite repercussions after the stack. Hercules found himself, once again, facing the ire of the Olympians for the egregious murder. Remember, as we've talked about now numerous times, to kill a guest was a terrible thing. That's why people kept trying to get Bellerophon to die himself by fighting stuff. Anyway, Hercules had to seek purification. Again. And he did. And actually had to enter into slavery for a woman to serve as penance. He spent three years in slavery, but he was finally released. He might be free and clear in the eyes of the gods, but he would never forgive the king for first refusing to give him Ioli's hand, but then accusing him of theft. As a quick aside, the real thief of the king's herds was none other than our old friend Autolycus from the Sisyphus episode. He was once again up to his old tricks. 
Anyway, time passed, and Hercules heard of another beautiful daughter that a father was basically auctioning off. Her name was Deonyra. She had a whole crowd of suitors, but as Hercules walked up, everyone decided that the notoriously strong and violent hero could win this one. All others, except an old river god in attendance who, as no one would do to make a good impression on his future in-laws, took three forms, a bull, a snake, and then a minotaurish man. The king, not really wanting to anger either of those guys, told them, you know what, you all handle it. Deonyra was silently rooting for Hercules, you know, over the half-bull who, in his human form, was still kind of a creepy old man. Hercules won when he tore off one of the beast's horns and sent him sulking away in shame. Hercules smiled. Of course he did. He was the son of Zeus. He was quickly learning, as his father seemed to demonstrate on an almost daily basis, that it didn't matter what you did, only if you could do it, get away with it. Hercules had destroyed everything that had been said against him, and he was learning that he was unstoppable. The king put on a magnificent banquet that evening, and Hercules, not really caring about his impending marriage, spent the night with his future wife. Some versions outright state that this was not consensual. Hercules, it seems, was becoming more like Zeus every day. In time, they married, and Hercules wanted to take her back to Tiryns. The husband and wife came to a rushing river, but Hercules was worried. Sure, he could handle it, but if he tried to carry her, she might get swept away. It was then that a solution emerged. He saw a man in the center of the river, arms crossed and floating laterally across the current. Curious as to how he was doing this, Hercules figured it out when he saw the man exit the river. As it turns out, he wasn't a man. He was a centaur. We've talked about the centaurs before, but they are men down to the waist with the body of a horse after that. They basically have all four horse legs. They are generally wild and untrustworthy, but there are a few exceptions. This apparently was one of them. He introduced himself. He was Nessus, and he said he saw the predicament. And he would be happy to help. As Hercules could see, it was no problem for him to swim across, and she could sit safely on his back. Hercules didn't quite trust the centaur, but given that he had killed many, many centaurs in his time, and had a quiver of hydra-poison-coated arrows, it wasn't that big of a problem. He thanked this surely trustworthy gentleman for his help, and Deonyra climbed onto Nessus's back. Real quickly, I should mention that if you haven't listened to episode 10a, Hercules killed a Lernian Hydra as one of his labors, and dipped arrows in its extremely poisonous blood. He used them constantly throughout his labors, and they are super effective at killing things, instantly. Also, he seems to have a basically limitless number of them. Anyway, back to Deonyra riding across the river. The water rushed around her thighs, but she could feel the strong horse legs of the centaur kicking underneath the water. They slowly crossed the river and came to the opposite bank. She gripped his crimson cloak and made to step down when he reached the other bank. But instead of kneeling down for her to wait for her new husband, Nessus broke into a gallop. He was running. He was kidnapping her. She looked back to see Hercules in the middle of the river, treading water. She yelled back at him, and when he saw how far away they were, gritted his teeth and swam faster. Soon, though, they were out of sight of the river. Deonyra didn't know, and neither did Hercules, but Nessus had come seeking Deonyra's hand the day before she married Hercules, but her father turned the centaur away. Now, he was determined to take her. Once he was sure he was far enough away from the river, 
Nessus bucked the young woman, who was only too happy to be off his back. She scrambled to her feet, but the centaur knocked her down, again, onto her back on the grass. She panicked when she saw what he had in mind, and soon he was standing above her. She found a rock. She was ready to fight him off, when she noticed him grab his stomach, wince. He wasn't smiling anymore, and blood began to dribble from his mouth. She looked and saw an arrow protruding out from his torso. Off in the distance, almost out of sight, was her husband holding his bow, his quiver containing one fewer hydra arrow. Nessus was strong and fought against the hydra poison coursing through his body. He collapsed and lay on his side on the ground. He said he lived his life with no regrets, except, you know, kidnapping Hercules' wife. That was a misstep. And then he looked at the young woman sitting there, recovering from the terror he had brought on her, and he pursed his lips. Nessa said that even though he was the one dying, he took pity on Deonira. He could see that she loved her new husband, but she knew what type of man he was. Deonira did know what type of man Hercules was. His uh, exploits were numerous and well-known. Nessa said that it might be one year, it might be twenty, but the man would stray. The one she loved would leave her, and she would be left alone, or worse than alone. At least if she hadn't married him, he wouldn't have been able to hurt her. When it does happen, she will have to live with this humiliation, betrayal, the rest of her life. In an instant, Deonira knew it was true. She sobbed. Nessus wiped her eyes. He said the darkness was getting closer. He could help, though, but she would need to listen to him. His cloak, the one that he was wearing, was covered in his blood. She might not know this, but the blood of centaurs is a type of aphrodisiac. Why did Deonira think that Nessus was so consumed with lust that he carried her off? For humans, though, it was different. It would be like magic. If Hercules touched his blood, then he would be forever in love with Deonira. Nessus took off his cloak and stowed it in Deonira's bag. The cloak, since it was soaked in his blood, would be an insurance policy for Deonira. The moment she suspected Hercules might stray, just have him wear the cloak, and he will be yours forever. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. Hercules doesn't like to be controlled. If he knew about it, he might resist. She thanked Nessus, who said that it was the least he could do to repay Deonira and her new husband, and that he was sorry about what he had done to her. With that, the centaur died. Walking with her new husband at Tyrans, she rested her hand on the bag, confident that they would be together forever. And they were happy together for many years. And Hercules, though he went on many adventures, always returned alone and excited to see his wife. They had several children together. Now, though, she heard this horrible news from the messenger. Remember that Hercules had just sacked the city and brought home some captives? Well, that city was the one where he had been denied Iole's hand. In a truly dark turn, Hercules had rushed to the fortress after he broke the city, likely covered in other people's blood, and found the king, Ioli, and her brothers. The king he clubbed immediately, and then he went to Ioli. He told her that she might not remember him, but he had won her hand years ago. Now, he was going to take it. She sneered at him, and just gave him a flat no. He had killed her father and her brother, 
she would never marry him. Hercules, angry that, once again, someone was denying him something he thought to be his, looked around for a solution. His father, Zeus, didn't have this problem. He took what he wanted when he wanted it. Hercules looked at Iole's brothers cowering against the wall. He drew his sword and grabbed one by his period-appropriate clothing, probably a tunic. Anyway, he put his sword to the boy and said that Ioli would gladly accept his proposal, or all her brothers would die. She looked at him squarely in the eye, betraying no emotion, and said, once again, that she would never marry him. Hercules shrugged and plunged his sword into her brother's stomach. And then he went to get the next one. She didn't cry, scream, or plead as Hercules killed every one of her family members right in front of her. When he was done, he ordered Lichus to take the girl as a slave and deliver her to Hercules' house. When she was finally out of view of the monster, Ioli broke down sobbing. Now, back in Caledon, his new kingdom, because remember Hercules is a king, Deonyra had just allowed Ioli into her house. She felt a sickness in the pit of her stomach, but she knew what she must do. The day had come for her to use the cloak Nessus had given her all those years ago. She found the bag and felt the cloak. This had to work. She told the messenger to find Lichus and tell him to get a chariot. They were going to see her husband. Hercules was standing at an altar of Zeus, offering sacrifices when his wife walked in. We don't know what she said, and maybe he was surprised to see her. Regardless, she, Lichus, and Hercules were the only ones in the room. She had given Lichus the cloak while she stood in front of her husband. She wanted him to see her and love only her for the rest of his life. She saw Lichus go up behind Hercules and drape the cloak over his shoulders. He patted his king on the back and smiled at Deonyra. It was done. Hercules looked up at his wife and Deonyra was almost weeping for joy. He would love her and only her forever. And then he began to scream. She hadn't heard, no one had heard Hercules scream like that, ever. Then, in addition to the screams, they heard a horrible cracking and popping echoing through the room. Deonyra wondered for a moment, was, was it working? Is this what eternal fidelity looked like? Or Hercules was in unimaginable pain. He could feel his skin bubbling and melting. It was this cloak. He had to get it off. He pulled, but it was stuck. He pulled harder, and with more excruciating pain, it tore off, with all the skin that had been underneath it. Barely able to stay conscious because of the pain, he looked at the cloak. He saw the hole where the arrow had pierced it, and he immediately knew. This was Nessus's old cloak, the centaur, and it was still covered in Nessus's blood, as well as what had been in his blood, the hydra poison. It was now in Hercules, and he felt like he was burning up, like boiling water was pumping through his veins. He immediately thought Lichus had betrayed him and grabbed the man. He flung him bodily off a nearby cliff and then collapsed in pain. Deonyra covered her mouth in horror, watching her husband writhe on the ground with only half of his skin and his bones and his muscles underneath burning away. Then she wept. She understood what was happening. 
She had only wanted to keep his love. And now, as it was plain to see, she had killed him. She was inconsolable. And yeah, as it turned out, Nessus completely lied to her so that he could kill Hercules from beyond the grave, knowing the hydra poison was in his blood, and knowing that Hercules would very impertinently bring someone home to replace his wife someday, Nessus bet big on this final gambit, and it paid off. So yeah, centaur blood is not a love potion, so if you have a bottle, please throw it out. According to Ovid, Hercules sat up and recited all of his labors, and all the awesome things he had done with his life, and cursed Hera, who must have done this. Then, he realized that he was dying. There wouldn't be any coming back from this one. Whatever had been said long ago about him achieving immortality must have just been typical Delphic Oracle wordplay. He could feel his faculties begin to fail him, but then he pushed himself up on his half-skinless arms. No, he was Hercules. He wouldn't die like this, on the ground like some dog. He struggled to his feet. He would decide how he went. It had been a couple of days by sea, and then another day walking up the mountain. But they made it to the peak of Mount Etta, in central Greece. There, despite his skin burning, and his body failing from the poison, Hercules built his own funeral pyre. Because only wimps don't build their own funeral pyres. Finally, he laid down on the wood, and despite all of his close friends and family all around him, including Iolus, his nephew, no one would light the pile of wood, with Hercules still alive on top of it. Then, a passing shepherd walked by on his normal route, only to see the greatest hero of his time begging his friends and family to please set him on fire. It was getting late, and the boy, named Philectetes, said that he could set the stranger on fire. Hercules thanked the boy, and laid back. But he paused. He removed his quiver of hydra-poison-coated arrows and his bow, and he passed it to the boy, who didn't quite realize the honor that he'd been given. Philoctetes would go on to compete for the hand of Helen and fight in the Trojan War. The boy swallowed hard and lowered the torch down on the wood. It erupted in flame, and Hercules breathed a deep breath and laid back. I like to think in those last few moments, he was staring up at the sky. The adventurer in him eager to see what came next. Or maybe he was just in indescribable pain because of the poison burning him and the fire burning him. And he was just able to keep it together for a few more moments of consciousness so he could have a super brave death. In the end, one writer says that Hercules cried out to Zeus and Zeus responded. Clouds gathered in the sky and one lone thunderbolt came down and struck the pyre, consuming it and Hercules. In an instant, the fire was out and they saw just ashes. Iolus, remember his nephew and the companion on his labors, was the first one brave enough to check the pile, to collect the hero's bones. But as he brushed aside the ashes from the wood, there was nothing. Hercules' nephew, Iolus, looked up at the night sky and smiled. He knew exactly what had happened. The lightning bolt. It had come down and burned away the human part of Hercules and taken the rest of him up to Olympus. The uncle with whom he had fought the Hydra had taken his seat on Olympus with his father, Zeus. Now, all alone at the consumed pyre, Iolus began piling stones, building an altar for Hercules, who was surely looking down upon them all.
just as a quick little editorial. Okay, so Hercules gets apothesized, but Bellerophon, who didn't make a woman watch as he murdered her brothers, is still picking his way blind and shamed around the plains. As fun as Hercules' character can be, it was difficult to give him an emotional send-off, given just how extremely terrible he was towards the end. But yeah, that's apparently how he died. But he was transformed into a god by the Olympians and worshipped in the ancient world. There are many more stories of Hercules, and apart from the stories of the Argonauts, he'll pop up again on this podcast from time to time. Anyway, that's the story of the death of Hercules. As a quick postscript, remember how I said Hercules had many children? Well, together they're known as the Heraclids, and they are a veritable army. It was a mark of honor in ancient Greece to be able to trace your lineage back to Hercules, but someone actually tried to wipe them out after Hercules was gone. You've heard his name, King Eurystheus. Angry that Hercules was known for killing all the cool stuff, while the king who commanded him to kill all the cool stuff was hiding in a bronze jar, Eurystheus attempted to exterminate the Heraclids. Unfortunately for him, the adult children of Hercules were adult children of Hercules. And though they fled to Athens, they turned right around and destroyed Eurystheus. Hylas, Hercules' son by Deonyra, cut off King Eurystheus' head. Apollodorus said that he gave the head to Alcmene, Hercules' mother, who gouged out his eyes with weaving pins. Wikipedia says, and I cannot find a source on this, that Eurystheus' decapitated head then shriveled to resemble a duckling. Wrapping up, in his place, Eurystheus left two brothers in charge, Atreus and Theestes. They have an incredibly messed up family history, and we'll absolutely talk about it in time, but Atreus was the father of two very noteworthy sons, Agamemnon, the leader of the Greek warriors in the Trojan War, and his brother, Menelaus, Helen of Troy's very angry husband. Next week, I'm starting the story of Hong Gildong from Korea. It's a hugely important story about a boy who's been called the Korean Robin Hood. It's such a good story, and I'm really excited about it. There are dragons, magic, bandits, and betrayal. It's fantastic. I want to say thanks to Lizzie Lee 651, PK Brooks, Jum Bomb Daman, Nick Rain 85, Ekbevan, Bad Wolf 122, Pibez, WTF Pita Chip, Stillian 83, Kevin Orth, Sea Dog, Jamail, Woody 11309, Northern Monkey, and Sibby Birdie and Emily for leaving reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so much. It really does help people find the show, and it's just great to hear your feedback. And yeah, if you want to leave a review, iTunes or the podcast app are the best places, and you can find that at itunes.mythpodcast.com. Also, there's a membership thing on the site. For way less than the price of eight live leeches on Amazon, you can help support the show and get extra episodes and source pack ebooks that were never used by medieval doctors to cure everything wrong with you. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more information. The creature this week is the Mamawasawug, which I've largely stopped apologizing for mispronunciations, but this one is really bad. Sorry. It's from Native American folklore, and it's from tribes in Canada. It's a two-foot-tall person that hangs around riverbanks. He's mostly nice, though he'll sometimes blow your canoes off course, or steal stuff from you if you don't show him respect. How can you show him respect? Well, he has some very specific hobbies. He likes shooting off guns, smoking tobacco, and brightly colored bits of cloth. I know I've gotten a lot of mileage out of this joke, but seriously, one of these things is not like the other. Their faces are completely hairy, and in some traditions they have no nose, and their voice is like the whine of a dragonfly. 
Like I said, they generally aren't too bad to you, but one family thought they were cursed by them in the 1820s when their chickens began having seizures and their house burnt down because the creatures were allegedly placing hot coals around it. It was, apparently, because a previous tenant that had lived on the land took over the creature's grove and cut down all the trees. The family didn't know this and they moved, but if you find you have problems with this creature, you can get on its good side. How? Help them out with their hobbies. So give them guns, tobacco, and cloth, and you'll be blessed with a long life and prosperous hunting. Really, though, if you're walking up to a child-sized person on the river, offering him cigarettes, a gun, and brightly colored bits of cloth, it seems more likely that you'd be granted a trip to prison than a long and happy life. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.